Heavenly Father, we do ask that through the Lord Jesus Christ you would send the Holy Spirit to us now so that we would hasten and not delay to obey your commands. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue to look at the temptations of Christ, the time of testing that he received from God and, of course, from Satan. It's temptations from Satan, time of testing from God, and this is his first work as the Son of God in full-time ministry. We saw his baptism in chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, and now we've been looking at Matthew chapter 4 and these temptations. And last week we examined closely the first temptation that was given to Jesus. What was the first temptation? Well, it was there in verse 3, where the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. How is this a temptation? Well, we saw last week that Satan was tempting Jesus to trust God's word that he, Jesus, is God's son whom he loves and is well pleased with. He's saying, if you are the son of God, let's test God by filling your stomach. Look at your stomach and see if it is full and then you will know that you are a child of God. So distrust God's word and let's trust your stomach instead. And then the second temptation is given for us today, and that's what we'll be examining closely together. That is in verse 5 and 6, where the devil takes Jesus to the holy city and has him stand on the highest point of the temple and gives him this temptation. And what is that temptation? He says, If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. He wants Jesus to jump off the temple so that God will catch him. That's the temptation that is put forward to Jesus. Now, how is this a temptation? How is this a temptation to sin? Well, once again, we read in verse 6 that phrase that came for the first temptation, which is, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, jump off this building. What is Satan doing again then? Well, he's getting Jesus to disbelieve God's word that he is God's son. God had declared from heaven, you are my son. And Satan is wanting Jesus to distrust that word and prove it some other way. How is he going to prove it this time? Well, it's not by his stomach seeing if he is well-fed and seeing whether God's a good father by feeding him, but by seeing whether God will catch him. Is God a good father? Is he your father? If he is your father, won't he catch you? And what does Satan do to increase the power of the temptation? He quotes God's word. Verse 6, If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, and he quotes Psalm 91, He will command, that's God, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. How does quoting the Bible increase the power of the temptation? Well, what did Jesus do when he resisted the first temptation that Satan came to him with? Satan didn't quote the Bible then, but then Jesus quoted the Bible. Jesus brought the Bible into the matter. We see in verse 3, sorry, verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quoted the Bible and he emphasised the importance of scripture. So what is Satan doing here? He's trying to beat Jesus with his own sword. He's saying effectively, you trust in God's word, you trust God, 
Let's test them both. Let's test God and let's test his word. He says in his word that if you fall, he will catch you. So let's test it. But what is Satan really doing here? He's wanting Jesus to exchange his true faith in God with a false faith in God and God's word. What is a false faith? Well, it's trusting, really trusting in something, but that thing that you're trusting in is not true. And so if you're trusting with a false faith in God, you're trusting God wrongly. You're trusting something about God that is not actually true. And how do we know that Satan is encouraging Jesus to trust something that is not true? Hasn't he quoted scripture here? Isn't this true, what Psalm 91 says, that God's angels will be commanded to catch you if you jump off a building? Well, it's interesting what Satan leaves out of the quote. He leaves out valuable words, and that comes for us in Psalm 91, verse 11. Let's turn back with uh, me. Turn back with me to Psalm 91, which we did open the service with. Psalm 91, verse 11. It's page 589, if you have a church Bible. Page 589, verse 11. And here's the quote in its original. It says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. What did Satan leave out? He left out to guard you in all your ways. Uh, in Luke's gospel, we do have the idea of guarding is given by uh, Satan in this temptation. But he leaves out in all your ways. That God will guard you in all your ways. And so what is the way of the person, of the person mentioned in Psalm 91? Well, it's got to be a person who lives according to God's ways. That person must be a person who doesn't live according to his own ways, but according to God's ways. Why do we know this? Well, it's because of the way the person is described in Psalm 91. What do we read in verse 14? Turn with me over the page if you have a church Bible to page 590. Psalm 91, verse 14. We read, Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Here we see someone who is promised salvation, but according to the fact that this person loves God and lives according to God's ways. There's no blanket promise given that whatever you do, God will guard you. No, it's to a person who loves God. And therefore, if a person loves God, they live according to God's way. So then we've got to ask ourselves, is it God's way for his sons to jump off buildings to see if God will catch them in order to prove that they are his children? Is that God's way? Does God give this promise so that we can prove whether we are children of God, that we can jump off a building? And the answer, of course, is no. It's not a blanket promise that jumping off a building, doing whatever you want, God will save you. No, he will guide you according to your ways, and if you are a child of God, then you will live according to his ways, not your own ways. You will live according to the Father's ways. And so then how does Jesus... Prove that jumping off buildings for God to catch, for God to catch him, 
isn't God's way? Well, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. In Matthew chapter 4, we can see the quote is given there where he says, Matthew chapter 4, back into your New Testaments, where he says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And what is the context of that quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6? Well, it's Israel demanding water to see if God is really among them. Deuteronomy chapter 6 refers back to Exodus, a time in the Exodus where the people were without water and they said, is God really amongst us? They were wanting to know, is God really our father? They wanted protection from God to prove that God was really their father, despite repeated declarations by God throughout the Exodus and despite signs and wonders that were given in their Exodus. They wanted proof that God was truly among them by protecting them from thirst. So what is God's way to know if we are one of his children? What is the way for Jesus to know that he is God's son? Well, like I said last week, it's the declaration of his word. Jesus had a declaration from heaven that he was God's son and that God loved him and that God was well pleased with him. And it's the same for us. We need to look to God's word to know whether we are his children. And what does the word say? The word says that true faith in God, that trusting in God, makes children of God. Jesus was one who trusted in God, and we must trust in God too if we are to be his children. And if we need further tests to know if we are the children of God, God's word tells us, look at whether you love God and whether you love your neighbour as yourself. Look at the way you live and your love for your fellow man and your love for me. We read that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. It says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. You want to know if you're a child of God? Look at whether you do what is right. Look at whether you love your brother. Then you will know whether you're a child of God or whether you're a child of the devil. So we see here these two temptations of Christ, two different attacks upon his true faith in God. What was the first temptation? Well, the first temptation was a temptation to exchange belief in God for belief in his stomach. Jesus was trusting in God and his word. Satan comes along and says, let's trust in your stomach. If your stomach is full then we'll know that you are God's child. Jesus resisted. What's the second temptation then? It was to exchange Christ's true belief in God and his word for a false belief, for a false belief in God that he would catch whoever throws themselves off the buildings that are around. So the first temptation, we can say, it falls short of scripture, of what scripture says. The second temptation because you don't trust God's word, you'll trust your stomach instead. The second temptation goes beyond Scripture, goes further than Scripture actually says, and Satan does it by leaving out an important clause that's with the promise. The first temptation, you could say, distrust God's providential care. You're here starving in the desert. God hasn't provided for you. Let's see if you're God's child by satisfying your stomach. The second temptation falsely trusts God's providential care or presumes on God's care and so you can see the difference between these two temptations but they're both an exchange of true faith 
exchanging true faith for your stomach, for trusting in your stomach, or exchanging true faith for a false faith in God and what his word doesn't say. But what was the result of the temptation? Well, we see that Jesus resisted the evil one and continued to trust in God and his word. And so that day, Jesus didn't fall from faith. He didn't fall from the temple, and he didn't fall into hell, which is where those who distrust God are destined. Unlike us, we give in to the temptation of the evil one, to have a false belief in God and his word, so often. How so? Well, we misread God's word and make it say what it doesn't. We do what theologians would say, is called eisegesis rather than exegesis. Exegesis is where you take something out of God's word to understand it. Eisegesis is where you read something into God's word that isn't actually there, and then you trust that rather than what God's word actually says. We so often will do eisegesis. We'll see what isn't there, or we'll not read what is there, like Jesus had read Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he knew that that clarified Psalm 91. But we won't do that. Instead, we see what isn't there or we read what is... uh, We don't read what is there and so we believe in something false. Like what? What do we do? What's an example of eisegesis for us? Well, it's what Satan was promising. That I can do something dumb and God must save me. After all, I am his child, aren't I? And... God is love. It says it in God's word. He is love. And so I can do whatever I like. I can fall into sin. And God will catch me. I can go into an area where I know I'll be tempted. But God will catch me. Why? Because God is love. He is my father. He will save me. I can turn on the computer. I can start up the web browser. And God is love. And he will stop me from going somewhere where I shouldn't on the internet somewhere where I know I struggle. God is love, and we read that, and we think that we can fall into sin and it will be okay. Or we can do something physically dangerous, and God will catch us, because he says so in Psalm 91, doesn't he? He, And we know the Bible says God is love. Whatever I do, he will catch me. And it may be a physical danger, such as just quitting your job, You don't like your boss, you don't like the customer's toxic place, I'm quitting. And God will catch me. I'll have food, I'll be able, okay? Because God is love. God is my father. And so I can throw myself into great physical danger, but God will provide a roof over my head, he'll provide clothes, he'll provide me with food. But that's not true. That's an eisegesis. That's a reading into the text something that is not there, like Satan tried to get Jesus to do so many years ago. But it's what we do, and it's what Israel did as well. Israel thought back in the desert that God should prove his his being amongst them, that he was their father, by giving them pain-free lives. And we falsely believe that too, don't we? Far too often. We believe that parents must ensure that their children never get hurt regardless of what they do. That parents must bail out their children from prison or whatever other harm they got into. Because that's what parents do. And so God, if he is our father, a loving father, then he must 
wrap his children in cotton wool and make sure that they never get hurt, regardless of how stupid and foolish the child behaves. The cotton wool of the parent is always there around them to protect them. That's what the word says, isn't it? But it's not true at all. We want to think that God is a bad father if he doesn't catch us from whatever harm we fall into. Or we think that he's not our father at all, that we're not his children and we turn our back upon him. But what are we doing? We're falsely trusting God. Our boast of great faith in God that he will catch me wherever I fall is actually a false faith. It's not a great faith at all. It's trusting something that is not true. And why is that? Because we're not living according to God's ways. We're living according to our ways instead. And how are we doing that? Well, it's by testing God, by saying God is love, as a blanket statement, ignoring his spoken clarifications of the declaration that he is love. That he's also a God of hatred, a God who is angry and righteous and holy towards sin. The flip side of being loving is that you love what, if you love what is good, then you must hate what is evil. And so that's what we are doing. We are presuming God's love. It's a false faith. And what is the result? Well, we're sinning, we're falling from faith, we're falling from God's temple, as Adam and Eve did so many years earlier. They were in the temple of God, the Garden of Eden, and they fell. We talk about the fall. And that's what Satan was trying to do with Jesus. He was on the very height of the temple of God. And he was encouraging him to fall from that height. And what's the result as we fall? Well, we have pain now as we live in sin and do dangerous things and God doesn't catch us. We will feel pain. And what's the ultimate result? Well, we fall straight into the pit of hell for our false belief in God. And what's the result of being in hell? Well, it's pain for eternity. Crushed under God's rock of judgment. So what hope is there for us? What hope is there for us that will we not not be crushed under God's judgment, stone in hell for all eternity because of our false faith in him, because of our false reading of the text and believing things about God that we shouldn't? Our only hope is to repent. And to come to God according to his way and not ours. And what will happen then? God will send his angel to lift us up in his hands so that we will not strike our feet against a stone. What angel does God send to those who repent and seek to live according to God's ways? Well, ultimately, the great angel himself, Christ Jesus, the Son of God himself, He's an angel in the true sense. What's an angel? An angel is just the word for messenger. And Jesus was the great messenger that came from God himself. He came and he is the one who lifts up those who repent in his hands so that they will not descend into hell. But how can Jesus catch us? How is Jesus able to do so? Catch those who are falling, who have fallen into sin, Because it was God's way for Jesus to go to the cross for our sins. Jesus took the false faith of his people and he fell. He fell under what? The crushing weight. 
of the rock of God's judgment at the cross. He fell under the judgment of God. And thankfully, even then, Jesus did not listen to the tempter while he was on that cross, that this was not God's way for him. What did people do as Jesus was hanging there on the cross? What do we read in Matthew chapter 27, verse 39? It says, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. The same phrase that Satan used with Jesus at his temptations in the desert. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This is not God's way for you. But Jesus knew it was God's way for him. If he is to save God's people, the way for him was to suffer on the cross and not be saved in that time where he is under God's wrath. But then how do we know that Jesus paid for the sin of his people? That he paid for their false belief, for their trusting in their stomachs instead of God and his word? Well, we know it because Jesus stood firm always and lived according to God's ways. And so has God's protection. We see him standing firm here in the desert with Satan. And we know that he paid for God's sin, uh, for, for our sin. He paid for the sin that we have committed against God. How do we know? We know it by his resurrection from the dead. And Romans 1, 4 makes that clear to us. It says, And who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was saved from the dead. After his suffering was completed for our sin, he was raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, showing that he is God's son, because he had lived according to God's way all his life, and even to the cross. He was willing to endure that as God's way for him. And God then lifted him up. And so what is the result? For us who repent, well, certain things won't happen to us. What won't happen to us? Well, Psalm 91's promise is fulfilled. What was Psalm 91's promise? We will not strike our feet against a stone despite our fall. Why, what stone won't we strike our feet against? Well, not the stones of this world. We're never promised that we'll be wrapped in cotton wool in this world and that you'll never strike your foot against a stone. Some of you have fallen pretty hard in this world. Thankfully, I've never broken a bone yet. That is only a yet. I don't know what tomorrow may bring, where I might be struck by a stone. That's not the promise that's made there, ultimately. No, it's not the stones of the world that we're promised that we'll never strike our feet against. But there is a promise that we'll never be struck by a far greater stone. And what is that stone? It is Christ, God's rock. We'll not be crushed by Christ in hell. We read in Luke 20, where he quotes from Isaiah, verse 17, he says, The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. They will be crushed, those who have the stone of God's judgment, which is Jesus Christ, fall upon them. That's the stone you need to worry about, not the stones of this world. They may break your ankle. You need to worry about the stone of God's judgment, which is Jesus Christ. If you fall under that stone, you are crushed for all eternity. But for those who repent, 
This will not crush them. This stone will not crush them. But what will happen to those who repent? They will rest on the rock, that is Jesus. They will not be under the rock, they'll rest on the rock. And they will crush under their feet Satan himself. That is what he's promised to those who repent. Psalm 91 verse 13 was omitted by Satan as well. Look with me at Psalm 91 again. He quotes to Jesus that no harm would befall him, that the angels would guard him in all his ways, that they would lift him up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Well, he didn't mention the ways, but he did say that God will lift him up so he will not strike his foot against the stone. But then he didn't continue the quote, did he? What's the very next verse say? You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. That is what we strike our feet against because Christ has struck Satan with his foot, his tread upon Satan with his heel, and those who are united with Christ by repentance crush Satan as well. We read in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is what happens to those who trust in Christ who repent of their sins and live according to God's way. They rest on the rock, and that rock crushes Satan. And what else is the result? We are raised, and will result, we will be raised by the Spirit from the dead to be in eternal cotton wool. God the Father doesn't promise us cotton wool now, but in heaven he does. There'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness, no more dying, because the Lord will look after us for all eternity. So either we stumble and fall on Jesus and are crushed under his judgment, or we rest on Jesus. We rest on Jesus as the great stone which crushes Satan. And why can these results take place for sinners? Because God is love. God is love. He is love to those who turn from their sins and trust in him. He is kind and he saves those who repent. Because he loves me, I will save him. Those who love him experience his love. And so if you've never repented before, realise you are falling. You are falling from a very great height. Why? Well, your first parents, Adam and Eve, back in the garden so long ago, they listened to Satan and they fell. And they fell into sin on your behalf. You started falling with them thousands of years ago. And then, of course, you've fallen into sin every time that you thought everything will be okay, God will catch me, because he is love and I can do whatever I like. Where you've presumed God's kindness. You've started to fall. But realise that you are falling and God won't save you. Rather, he will crush you under his rock in hell. So what should you do? Repent of testing God, of exchanging true faith for a false faith in God. Realise that you've never really believed in the God of the Bible. You've been believing in a false God of your own making. And what else should you do? Trust 
Trust rightly in God. Trust his promises according to his ways. Do exegesis rather than eisegesis of God's word so that you truly trust God. And what will happen if you do? That same stone that is crushing you into hell even now, bearing down upon you, you will see it go under you if you trust in him, if you repent of your ways. It will go under you and it will lift you up as soft and gentle hands, as a messenger from God himself, so that you will not be struck under that stone in hell for all eternity. And what else will happen? Well, you will rejoice. You will rejoice in the Christ who resisted Satan and has caught us and will guard us in all our ways as we follow God to heaven itself. And you'll rejoice in the miraculous sign that was given so many years ago so that we can know that we are saved. What is the miraculous sign that was given? The sign of Jonah. We don't need to throw ourselves off the top of a building to know if God loves us, to know if God is our God, our Father. We've already been given a sign, the sign of Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That sign has been given us. We don't need to test God's love. It's already been proven by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we can rejoice in that, that we have been owned as his children by the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And if we want to test our faith and see if it's a true faith, a faith that we have because we are children of God, well, we can go to his word. And we can look at the test that he has given. We can look at whether we have true faith itself, whether we have that true repentance, whether we have love for God and love for neighbour. We don't need to throw ourselves off a building. We can look at, do I love those around me? Do I love God himself? We do not need to put the Lord our God to the test at all. We can test our faith by the ways that he has prescribed and then rejoice in the signs and seals that he has given us in Christ Jesus. Let's come to Jesus Christ now in prayer. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one who refused to exchange true belief in God's word for false belief. We confess that we have not been like you. Far too often we have fallen from the temple and deserve to fall straight into hell and be crushed by your wrath for all eternity. But we thank you that you have granted many of us repentance in this room so that you have lifted us up so that we are not crushed in hell by your wrath. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to rejoice in you, to stand firm in faith, in repentance, and love for God and love for our neighbour. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who has not repented of their sins, not repented of their false faith, may they see they are falling and the great danger they are in and turn to you for your grace now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.